if anybody's gonna join us, they will join us later. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you again this day, this hour that you've granted us to come around together and hear what you have recorded for us to know, to believe about who you are, who Christ is and what he has done and what that means for us who are sinners. And we thank you that is good news for us that by him all our sins have been cast away from you and from us. Christ put away our sins by his perfect offering of himself. We thank you for this gospel testimony and we pray that you would help us to hear and for me to speak correctly, accurately, faithfully. For the sake of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> yeah, you have to have some manners, right? And say hi to people. You can't just start eating their food without saying hi. Acknowledge them. <laughs> we are going to be back in Romans this morning. And we are going to be going over the same verses. Verse by verse. <laughs> From last weekend. Because, oh yeah, I forgot to turn on my timer. So I skipped a number of things, but it's just the nature of the book of Romans. It's a very theologically dense book. So it takes a lot of work to go through the terms and things like that. And I had promised that I was going to do a message on Romans 3, verse 31, which says, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. That's what I thought I was going to be working on. And faithfully, I don't think you can clearly do justice to that verse until you have gone to almost chapter 8. You almost have to preach all the way to chapter 8 of Romans and then come back to this one. Because people who read verse 31 of Romans 3, they do so without taking into consideration all the other discussion that Paul is going to do with respect to the law, gospel distinction in the chapters to come. But I think I still have by God's grace, ability to do a faithful message on that. And, of course, good morning, everyone who prayed for me. Thank you for the prayers. It's just one of those things. Well, people keep telling me that I'm still young. Oh, you're still young, still young. I used to be young 25, 30 years ago. Not anymore. <laughs> but thank you for the prayers. I'm feeling better today. And I hope that you keep praying and that the Lord will continue to sustain me. And I'm not tired because of the gospel. I always have somehow strength to talk about Jesus. Because the gospel is the power of God. I cannot come to talk about the power of God and then fail to have the power to talk about the power of God. He's going to give me the strength that I need. 
So that has been my experience. So thank you, everybody, for the love, for the messaging and everything that you are doing behind the scenes. And back to what I was talking about, Romans 3.31, I do not think we will be able to do that in this message at all and probably will not happen in the next message either because there's still a lot of details that we need to flesh out because without understanding the gospel and its terms, we cannot understand the things that many people love to quote from the Bible. And we cannot discern who is telling the truth and who is not telling the truth. A lot of people are deceived this morning even though they are in the church. The man of God has come in power. He has his anointing. He has his microphone and he's just saying a whole lot of foolishness that he claims is coming from God. Which things have nothing to do with what the gospel is all about. So, for you to really know where you stand with respect to eternity, with respect to God, you need to hear how God has defined things. Hear and understand what those things mean. That's the only way. That's the only way. Church is not about running up and down in pews and going crazy and stuff like that. It's time to sit down and understand, learn, hear what the scriptures are saying. Okay? So we shall be going through the teaching of the biblical terms, the theological terms that respect our salvation. Because if we do not understand these, as I said, then it is very easy to accept anything that has the name of Jesus in it as gospel. Defining terms is also important because the Holy Spirit found these terms to be the most accurate and appropriate to convey God's message to us so that we may understand what God is saying. And we shall understand and believe his message to the extent that we understand these terms. Apostle Paul has said this in Romans 3 verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, that is Gentiles, that is everybody, that they are all under sin. So that's the conclusion. And in Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we want to define what sin is. And it is the Greek word hamatia. And I'm going to be leaning on the NET, the New English Translation. And it defines it this way. Sin is to be without a share in. Fundamentally, that's the understanding, the definition of the word. To be without a share in righteousness. 
to be without a share. Like zero shareholding in righteousness. None. Like, I don't own any Tesla stock. I have zero percent share in the stock of Tesla or Amazon. And the sinner is without share in the righteousness of God. Number two, number B or number two, it means to miss the mark. That's the commonly known definition of sin, to miss the mark. To err, to miss or wander from the path of uprightness and honor to do or go wrong. So you are missing some standard, you're wandering from the path of uprightness. To wander from the law of God to violate God's law, okay, still defining sin, that which is done wrong, an offense, a violation of the divine law in thought or in act or in deed. So sin goes beyond just not doing things or doing things. Just the fact that you think it. Jesus brought that understanding to us when he said, well, don't think you are not guilty of adultery because if you just look at someone with lust, you're done. <laughs> so Jesus is really defining to us the real understanding of sin. We have a very good message, trust me, if the Lord will grant me the ability to speak it and for you to hear it. It's a very wonderful message. So sinners are wandering wanderers who have no share in righteousness because they have missed the mark. They've missed the standard. And Paul said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. None is exempt and falling short. And the Greek word that is translated as fall short is hysteria. And this is what it means. Again, coming from the NET, it means behind. To come late or too tardily. You want to hear this? To be left behind in the race. And so fail to reach the goal to fall short of the end. Okay? <laughs> Metaphorically, it is also used to say, fall back from. To fall back from, to be inferior in power, influence, and rank. So to be wanting all these words, they're speaking to the same matter, to be in want of, to suffer want, to be devoid of, to lack, be inferior in excellence or worth. That's what that word means. That is translated as 
sought for. And the Holy Spirit is saying, naturally all men and women are under sin and its condemnation. They have fallen short of the glory of God. They have come short of the end, the goal. We have fallen short of the goal of righteousness. Come short of the goal of the law, who is Christ. Left behind in the race of righteousness. And as a result, we have failed universally. All men and women have failed to reach the goal of righteousness. Not that they will fail, but they have failed. And that is the spiritual condition of all men. None is any better and is working towards reaching this goal. Okay? None is any better and is working to get to this by themselves. Why? Because the end is unreachable by any effort of man. The goal is unreachable. You cannot grow or progress your way to this goal. You cannot progress your way to this goal. It is not like growing up, we didn't used to get a lot of shoes. Typically, you'd have one pair of shoe or shoes per year. And sometimes the parents will buy you some oversized shoes and you had to stuff some newspapers in them until you kind of grew up into them, <laughs> grew up into your shoes. That's not the same concept. You can't grow to this righteousness like you grow into your clothes. Some people grow into their ears, the born big ears. I grew up into my hands. I have very long hands. I had to, over the years, grow into my hands. Some people grow into their heads. <laughs> I'm telling the truth. The point is we can't progress into this kind of righteousness. We can't grow into it. You can't eat any kind of food. Barbecue chicken. Yeah, chicken wings and wash it down with some diet supersize soda. <laughs> no, we can't. This is very important. The standard is righteousness. It is perfection. It is God. It is unbendable. It is non-negotiable. And because of all of that, men and women are guilty before God. And they have no room to boast about anything with respect to their own righteousness because they have none. And because of that spiritual condition, God says in Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The flesh here means no man, no human being, no human being shall be justified by God. 
by anything that they do. Because all have been left behind in the race of righteousness. None can be said to have successfully run this race by themselves and finished it. None is running to catch up. You cannot catch up on this kind of bills. The only way to catch up is for your debt to be paid by someone. That's the only way. That's the only way. The only way to catch up and finish it is if someone comes and says, it is finished. He has run the rest. And he proclaimed it. It is finished. So, knowing this about men and women, none can be justified in God's sight as having finished the race of righteousness, as having qualified of their own running to be partakers of God's blessing. And Paul says justified. None will be justified. And that word means declared as righteous. To justify or to be justified or justification and related terms is a legal term. It is a legal term. It is a courtroom term. It is language of the magistrates of the judiciary to declare a person as being in total conformity with all the legal demands of the law, such that the law demands nothing of them with respect to their freedom. The law cannot take their freedom away because the law is not owed anything by the person. And God says, no flesh shall be ever be declared by him as righteous, declared as being in total conformity to his law on account of anything that they have done, are doing, or ever do. God says it's not going to happen. Forget it. So Mother Teresa, if she was not justified by the free imputation righteousness, she wasn't saved. God denies the teaching that a person can be counted as righteous apart from his grace. So justification in the gospel context is God declaring a judgment. It is God doing it in his court as the highest authority and judge on a certain people and saying these people have met or have met every legal requirement. They have met every legal requirement of his law and therefore are 100% in conformity with everything that the law requires of them. As a result, God 
declares them as not guilty. <laughs> he declares them as not guilty. He declares them as not having any sin anymore because they have reached the end of the rest. If we have reached the end of the rest, you have no sin anymore with respect to God's judgment of you. But how so? They have reached the end of the race of righteousness not by a work of their own doing, but because of the imputation of righteousness. So the imputation of Christ's righteousness is the only way that one can reach this end and is the only basis for God declaring a sinner as righteous. So justification or your standing before God here and now and eternity is not conditioned on your moral goodness or your moral improvement. It is a legal state that one is put in by God, whereby God sees them and declares them as righteous in Christ. That's the operative term, in Christ. And because of that, justification is irreversible. Justification is unconditional. It is irreversible. Once God has pronounced it, it cannot be undone. Because God does not learn anything new about Sean that causes him to reconvene the heavenly courts and say, oh, I didn't see that. This boy was too much trouble. I think I'm going to have to change my mind because I have just received new evidence. doesn't work like that. So this is a very scandalous affair. It is the most scandalous thing that God has done among men to pronounce guilty sinners as righteous. And I want to correct something that people say. They say justification is as if one never sinned. That is not correct. Just not sinning does not cause one to be justified. Does not cause one to meet the mark. Because being a zero, understand me someone, being a zero or neutral is not helpful in this business, Adam, when he was created, was innocent, had not sinned, but he was not justified. He was not justified. Why? Because we know what happened in Genesis chapter 3. So an infant that dies two days after being born is very innocent. They have not actually done and is sinning. But surely they are not righteous. 
Because righteousness is an attribute of God alone. Only God is righteous. So God does not serve because one is innocent. He serves them because they have 100% his righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. And God serves if he serves and when he serves because that's what pleases him. <laughs> he delights in showing mercy. That's what makes him happy. And God has no problems with serving infants because the imputation of righteousness is done freely by his grace. And I have no problems myself theologically with how God can and will serve infants. Because, truthfully, I too am an infant with respect to righteousness. Compare yourself and God and see where you are, whether you think you are a teenager or an adult or what. You are an infant. When it comes to righteousness, Jesus said, unless you are converted and have become like children, you no way enter. You don't want to be a teenager. You don't want to be an adult. You want to be an infant when it comes to the matter of salvation. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these, as the infants, as the children, who have no claim of righteousness. That's what Jesus was teaching. I hope you have nothing of your own to claim before him. Because nothing you have or can bring has any weight whatsoever other than Christ Jesus. Also, in the matter of salvation, with respect to infants, I may do a message on infant salvation sometime. We'll see how the Lord will pull my strings. But this is what Paul said in Romans 9, 15 and 16. Speaking to the matter of election and salvation, Paul said, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. And the conclusion is, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs or shows effort, but of God who shows mercy. If God is determined to show mercy, end of story. <laughs> he will have mercy and compassion on whomever he wants. And that is to say salvation is done, has been done without cause in anyone and everyone who is saved. But we see men and women, because of unbelief, they are always trying to make it so that righteousness and salvation is accorded them in response to their own obedience. 
to make it about themselves. In one way or the other, people want to make the matter of salvation about themselves. If all men and women have failed to reach the mark, as God says, what makes you think God will save you? But somehow, he is not able to save infants and people with serious disabilities, very mentally challenged, very handicapped people. What is too hard for him to do if he is pleased and he has his elect among the mentally challenged? Because I've heard some preachers who actually say, God does not serve mentally challenged people. I'm serious. That's a sign that they don't know the God of the Bible and they don't understand the gospel. It's a sign that they think they're saved because of something that is found in them. Because to think that is to still condition salvation on something that we are doing or something that we have done, showing that we have a false gospel. So Paul says, by the works of the law, by the deeds of the law, none shall be declared as righteous before God. Let's define some things. The works of the law means your own obedience to the law or your own obedience to God. Not just what people call the ceremonial law, but the whole unit. The law cannot be divided into convenient, swallowable pieces or bites like you do with baby food. Gather babies in the church. <laughs> Dividing the law to small bites that they think they can swallow. No. The Bible does not admit of that. The law upholds the testimony of the inflexibility of righteousness by saying this in James 2.10, for whoever shall keep the whole law, okay, whoever shall keep the whole law, whoever shall keep 99.9% .9 of the law, and yet stumble in one point, shall go to heaven. <laughs> no it says he is guilty of the whole law if you stumble at one point for one second you are guilty of the whole law did you hear that James does not say if you keep the ceremonial if you keep the civil or the moral he doesn't make that distinction Whosoever shall keep the whole law that tells you that the law is indivisible because if you miss one point, it's a domino effect. You are guilty of the whole thing. And the other way to say it is how Paul phrased it in Galatians 5 verse 3. Hear this. Let's go to Galatians 
5 with 3. Pauses. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised. You see, circumcision, there's nothing moral about circumcision. It's just a cutting of the flesh. But here, what Paul says that relates to the whole law, I testify again toward every man who comes, who becomes circumcised, that he is a debtor to keep the circumcision. No, to keep the whole law. To keep the whole law. If you place yourself under the law for the one thing that you think you do well, because this is the deception. People think they have one aspect of the law that they're doing so well, and based on that, they think, oh man, God has to be pleased with me. And yet God comes and says, no. If you keep one part of the law, you have become a debtor. To do the 99% that you have not been doing, to do the whole thing, you have become a debtor to keep not just that one commandment, but the whole thing. And this is not a, an anti-law idea, as many people accuse us of being antinomians, because we declare this truth. This is God's truth. Those who call us antinomians for just repeating this truth ought to be shamed of their lives because they are bearing false witness and yet they're claiming to be doing the law. So none can be declared righteous on account of their law keeping, their righteous deeds, because the law was never given to make sinners righteous. You cannot be made righteous by the law. The law cannot help you bridge the gap. Remember, there's a huge gap that has to be bridged. The law cannot pull you out of the dungeon into which we have fallen. It was given not to pull us out, but to prove that you and I were at the very deep end of sin and hopelessness, the dungeon of unrighteousness, and deserved to stay there in sin, death, and condemnation for all of eternity. The law is given to give the knowledge of your sin as x-rays are done to reveal broken bones, but never to mend them. X-rays don't mend your broken bones. They only show that you have broken bones. They show that you have pneumonia in your lungs, but they don't shit. So, with that hopelessness, God comes around and says that is, this is how righteousness actually works. 
for the likes of us who are sinners. Romans 3.21 But now <laughs> But now apart from the law the righteousness of God although it is attested by the law and the prophets or being attested by the law and the prophets has been disclosed. But now righteousness. But now, and as I said in the previous message, but now is preparing to give us a contrast, a change from one state to another, to give a different view and understanding to give us the correct understanding of God and how he has determined to deal with the matter and how we ought to see it. He says, but now, it is one of the most refreshing words or two words that are in the Bible in this respect. But now, but now, but God But now, the righteousness of God has been made known, has been declared, has been manifested, has been revealed. It is the righteousness of God. See that. It is the righteousness of God as against your own righteousness. It is the righteousness that brings one into total conformity, 100% conformity with the law and does what the law could not do for you. This righteousness of God does something special for you that the law could never do. It is the righteousness that cannot be reached by Someone doing anything. You can't reach it by doing. Period. So those who say they are progressing in righteousness, they are lying. You cannot progress into the perfection of righteousness. No, you can't. Because it is the righteousness of God's own doing. Paul Please define it for us. Verse 22, Romans 3. Namely, he defines now what this God's righteousness is. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness or faith of Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness by which a sinner is made just before God, is through the faithfulness of another. I'm being slow and deliberately so because I need people to hear every line of what I'm saying. This righteousness is through another person. (laughs) So when it comes to righteousness, you have to talk about the righteousness of another. As long as you're talking about your own righteousness, then you have not understood what God is saying. It is through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus 
See the contrast. The sinner, by sinning, has proved to be unfaithful. That's the contrast. That is speaking to what we just heard from Paul saying, oh, I've fallen short of the glory. But now we have this other person who has been faithful in the race of righteousness from the start to the very end. He is a faithful runner. Christ Jesus is a faithful Olympian in righteousness. He starts the race and he won it. Remember, to fall short means to be left behind in the race. And so fail to reach the goal, to fall short of the end. So the finishing line in any race, whether marathon or whatever, there's always a finishing line. They don't change the finishing line. <laughs> the finishing line is always there. You're going to have the umpires or whoever is in charge of the race right there. You have the timers and everything is right at the end of the course. Okay, So Christ is the opposite. He is faithful in the race of righteousness from start to finish. And in his faithfulness to accomplish the race of righteousness, he has established the righteousness of God for all who believe, not because they believe, but all who believe because God has made them to believe. They are elect. So faith is evidence that you possess that righteousness which is agreeable with God's own perfection. The righteousness of God admits of no flaw. It is unchanging. It is constant. It does not have mood swings. <laughs> righteousness is tied to faithfulness. And sinners by nature are faithless. They are unreliable. They are untrustworthy. We do not deliver the goods with respect to righteousness. But Christ Jesus came and delivered on every jot and tittle of the law because he was made a debtor to the whole law on account of his people, for the sake of his people. And he also delivered on all the terms that he agreed with the Father as to the conditions that had to be met by him on behalf of his people. And so, for anyone now to come and say, oh, they are doing the law, is a mockery of the race that Christ already ran and won. And thus, when we talk about the faithfulness of Christ, when we talk about the obedience of Christ, we are talking about the 
total obedience of Christ in righteousness towards God on behalf of his people. And so how does the believer run to the end because we supposedly are in the race also? How do we run in the light of all this? How do we run? Let's go to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul says, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, in the light of what he had just discussed in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, he says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight, and the sin that clings so closely or so easily. And the sin that clings so easily is unbelief. That's the context of the book of Hebrews. It's unbelief that is being contrasted with the faith that the Holy Spirit has just discussed in chapter 11. And then he says, and run with endurance like an Olympian. The race set out for us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So how do you run the race that meets God's righteousness. You run looking to Jesus. Not looking to Moses. Not looking to the law. Not looking to yourself. You run looking to the faithful one who ran and finished the race. How can you run a 100 meter race looking backwards? You are going to trip and fall. And we talk to many people who are running with one eye squinted looking at Jesus and the other squinted looking at Moses. Like they have some telescopic eyes like chameleons. You see, chameleons they have eyes that go like that. One looking at Jesus and the other one look at Moses. Okay? That's the theology, that's the gospel that is being preached the chameleon gospel. Keep rolling your eyes, one back to Moses and the other looking to Jesus. God says, no, I did not make you like chameleons. You only see in one direction so that you can look at Jesus. The other stuff is just chameleon gospel. Okay? <laughs> so running, looking back to Moses, looking back to the law, will get you disqualified in the race. And you are guaranteed to feel unserved. If you put yourself into this telescopic eye thing, chameleon type looking, you're always going to feel condemned. One day you feel saved, and the next day you feel condemned because the other eye is back to Moses. Okay, that's how it works. <laughs> Let's go back to Romans 3. 
22 and 23, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. All men and women in their piglets are sinners. Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, atheists, Christians are all sinners. No exception. Naturally, we are all sinners. Some just cover their sins better than others. They just put more foundation cream than others. <laughs> but they know they're sinners. I know a lot of this junk stuff too, you know. Proving that I'm a sinner. I don't use foundation, so just saying. <laughs> so what then? Verse 24. But they're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Sinners are justified. They're declared righteous. Let me repeat that statement. You may not have understood what I said. Sinners are justified. They are declared to be righteous. They are not made righteous. They are declared by God to be righteous even in their state of sin. They are not made righteous in the constitution of their persons but are declared as righteous. Because justification does not stop you from sinning. It stops you from being condemned for your sin. So declared righteous not by infusion or impartation of righteousness, but by a sovereign act, a sovereign declaration. And as I said, this transaction happens through the principle of imputation, by which sin, the failure to meet the mark and pay its debt, was legally charged to Christ's account and Christ was charged with the responsibility to make it all good. And his work is that which God uses as the only basis, just grounds to impute righteousness and declare you as righteous. But this declaration is not on all people regardless of their religion. It is only on those that God has imputed righteousness and caused to believe. These that God has spiritually made alive. These whom God chose and gave to Christ before the foundation of the world. These are they who believe. These are they who are justified. And Paul says God justifies them freely. In other words, he calls them righteous. He declares them as righteous. He sees them through the righteousness that 
he has freely and unconditionally given them. And freely there, as I explained in the previous message, means without merit, without a good cause in them. Righteousness has been given us without a good cause in us. Because it is not in us. It is in Christ. So God justifies freely because Christ has the substance. He has the value upon which this transaction has been done. Christ is the good cause of our justification. And because God is justifying us, apart from our own works, it can only be by his grace. God is not under obligation to serve anyone by reason of themselves, by reason of their tears, by reason of their poverty. God naturally is obligated to no one but himself. God is not obligated to no one, but he has been obligated to us because of Christ. Now there's nothing that he can do to separate us from him because God and Christ are inseparable and we are in the one that God loves, that is Christ Jesus. So we cannot be lost. Okay? So grace means unmerited favor. In the Armenians, the free will people, the I chose Jesus, I decided I walked in I.O. people. <laughs> they talk of a different grace. They talk of a different Jesus, a different gospel that is conditional on the sinner acknowledging Jesus and accepting Jesus, inviting Jesus into their heart. Where in this teaching of Paul do we see the Holy Spirit saying, oh, you invite Jesus into your heart? They condition salvation on faith. And a faith that is self-caused or a faith that is universal, a faith that has been given to all men, there's nothing like that in God's gospel. There's no universal faith. Faith has only been given to those who should be saved. This is what Ephesians 2 verse 8 says. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one can boast. That's clear. It's not from yourselves. It's not from works, so that no one can boast. And that to say you can't claim to be saved by grace and then turn around and condition that same grace on something that is found in you. It is an oxymoron. It is confusion that we cannot accept. 
100% of the gospel is conditioned outside of you and I. Okay? Verse 24. Verse 24 again, Romans 3. But they're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now to the merit or cause of that justification. Justification is free towards us, but not so with respect to Christ. It is by God's grace that is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the merit that is caused your standing before God, your justification is in the redemption. It is in the redeeming work of Christ. It is not in you, but in Christ. It is for you, but not in you. It is for you. This redemption is for you, but it is not in you as causative. But what is redemption? Remember what Paul has told us about sin, that we have fallen short. So we are in the dungeon. We are captives to sin and death. So from that, we need to be brought back. That's what Jesus said. That's why Jesus said, What shall a man give in exchange for their soul? Because now in exchange has to happen, there has to be a buying back from. So redemption means to buy back from. It means a setting free by way of payment. Setting free by way of payment. That's what redemption means. Payment of a price. Not just anything. There's a stipulated price. And the price that was set for you to be bought back was in the person of Christ and in the form of his blood. But why being bought back, as I said, what are the assumptions? It means or it implies if one is being bought back, it means they were under captivity. They were under slavery. And captivity implies that one had been overpowered, had been imprisoned, and had no ability to set themselves free. Pay attention to that. Pay attention to captivity and no ability to pay. So sin puts us under captivity. That's what it did. It put us under captivity of death. Condemnation. A situation in which we are not able to redeem ourselves. We are not able to make the payment as to set ourselves free. So redemption means salvation or liberation or freedom acquired by way of payment of a price 
a ransom price. Okay, that's what it means. Salvation or freedom that was acquired by the payment of a price. Nothing to do with you doing anything. It's about the price that was paid. So the true gospel comes and declares to us the payment of that price. What was the price? It was Christ. How did he pay? By his blood. Did God accept it? Yes. Then we're done. We have good news. That's how you're supposed to preach the gospel and understand it. Don't preach and understand this thing based on what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. That's not going to work. It's not going to work. Hear this. In Acts 20, 28, this is Apostle Paul talking to the Ephesians elders. Acts 20, He says, watch out for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. That's the NET translation. The NJKV says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. You see, the purchasing, the buying back with his own blood. That's the price. That's what happened. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You were bought. You belong to the one who paid for you. As soon as you go to the groceries and you get your groceries, put them in the plastic bag and you pay for them, guess what? They don't belong to Kroger anymore. (laughs) They were purchased. You have the receipt to prove it, that they belong to you. There's been a change of ownership there with the purchase. As a result of this blood redemption, Paul says in Ephesians 1.7, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. So you see, the redemption is tied to his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. So the buying back was through the blood, the cross of Christ, And what did that achieve? What did that accomplish? The total forgiveness of all of your sins. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. You know that from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors. (laughs) Empty way of life. What is that empty way of life that was inherited by the Jews? It was law-keeping. It was law-keeping for salvation. Peter called it an empty way of life because it has no life. The law has no life for a sinner. It's empty. Inherited from your forefathers. So Peter, Peter says, you were ransomed from that life that had no life, not by perishable things like silver or gold, but by the precious blood like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb, namely Christ. So the Son of Man 
came not to be saved, but to save, to be the ransom for his people. Hear that ransom to offer himself as the price that would set his people free, the price of a freedom from sin, death, and condemnation was at the cost of the blood of Christ and nothing less and nothing more. And this is very serious business and very wonderful news. Now to how it happened. We know what it is and by whom it happened, but let us hear how it happens. Romans 3.23 God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat, accessible through faith. God, not Israel, not Herod, not Pilate, not the Pharisees and the priesthood, but God. God publicly displayed Christ at his death and that is in reference to the cross. So just as justification is a public declaration of righteousness, God accomplished it by publicly displaying Christ as the righteousness. At his death, as the propitiation, or messes it accessible through faith. When Christ died, his blood was shed. And God says his death was the propitiation, which word was borrowed from the day of atonement and related to the Old Testament tabernacle system and saying his death was the Hilasterion. The Hebrew word is kapareth. The death of Christ, that word that is translated in your Bible as propitiation or as messicid, was transported from the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament where it is called the Hilasterion. The message. And for that, we'll go to Exodus 25 to hear the context of that and how it relates to Christ. These were some of the instructions that were given Moses by God in the construction of the Ark of Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. Starting at verse 17 of Exodus 25, God said, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. So you have the mercy seat and you have two angels facing each other at the ends, at the both, both the ends of the mercy seat. And the mercy seat shall be of pure gold, which means no impurities, no blemishes, insinuating Christ 
and his righteousness and holiness. And the two cherubim of God to be mad and to be sitting at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, verse 19, and the other cherub at the other end. And the other cherub at the other end, you shall make the cherub at the two ends of it, of one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim shall be made one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. Lord have mercy. Look at that repetition. God is the master of repetition. He knows exactly what he's talking about. It seems God is very much or was very much interested in this detail of the construction of the mercy seat and the cherubim because he put so much emphasis on it. And we see Christ after the resurrection. What happened when the disciples went to the grave site of Jesus? There were two angels on both sides of the grave. Two angels that spoke to them. The cherubim overlooking the grave of Christ, where Christ had been buried. And God says, this is the message. seat. This Christ who was buried right here is the propitiation for the sins of the people. Hear this, verse 21. Exodus 25, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. Not in the ark. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I'll give you. So in the ark of the covenant, there were three items. There was the man, there was the rod of Aaron that budded and there was the two tablets of stone that had the Ten Commandments. The tablets of stone carrying the covenant of the law because the Ten Commandments are the covenant of the law. A lot of people don't know this. That's why they continue to say, oh, it's the moral law. <laughs> the very Ten Commandments are the covenant of the law. They are the letter that kills these are the Ten Commandments, the tablets that Moses broke down. He broke into pieces even as God had just given them to him to prove that sinners cannot keep the law. Just right there on Mount Sinai, Moses, in anger at the sin of Israel, he breaks them and God was preaching that sinners cannot keep the law. Even at the time of being given the law, they broke it. Right away. The very pieces, boom, and God had to make same one, or bring some more stones. Uh, I have to do this again, okay? To say salvation still had to come by Christ. And God says, verse 22, God says to Moses, and, they, and there I'll meet with you. 
And I'll speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. This ark of testimony and its atonement cover, the atonement cover was the mercy seat, was to be put in the most holy place where nobody could just go in and out, get killed. Okay? Only the high priest could go in there once a year and not without blood. So this is what Aaron, the then high priest of Israel, had to do on the day of atonement, Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, 11 to 14. Moses says, and Aaron, or God says, and Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, because he was a sinner, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat, on the east side, and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. The blood of the victim was to be sprinkled on the mercy seat seven times by the finger of the high priest. And this was in regard to making atonement for all the sins of the people of Israel. And God concluded Leviticus 16 by saying this in verse 34, This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. Atonement for all their sins, but in a temporal way. But do not miss the point. Do not miss the point for all their sins. For all their sins. If atonement is going to be made, it's always for all your sins. So the blood was sprinkled by the high priest yearly on the mercy seat to make a covering of the sins of the people. So the blood of the sacrifice was to temporarily pacify the wrath, the judgment of sin that was aroused by the very tablets of stone that were in the Ark of the Covenant. You could not touch the Ark of the Covenant without the blood. You die. But if the blood was there, it would pacify would make atonement. And we know from the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and gods could never take away sin. God was just preaching because the reality of it is in Christ. The law is the ministry of death and condemnation. It is the letter that kills. You would not hear 
this much from the so-called reformed people. You never hear them talk about the law is the letter that kills. You don't hear them say the law is the ministry of death and condemnation. They don't do that. They will say, oh, the law is the rule of life for the redeemed. There's no verse for that. <laughs> There's no verse for that. There's a verse that says the law is the letter that kills. There's a verse that says the law is the ministry of death and condemnation. Okay? And so it has to be pacified and can only be pacified one way by the blood of the sacrifice sprinkled on the mercy seat. The mercy seat without the blood cannot help you. Because the mercy seat was on there when Uzzah tied the ark of the covenant and died. It needs the blood. That is why the law cannot help a sinner. Because the law does not have the blood that pacifies the wrath of God. The blood that puts away sin. Blood must be sprinkled the mercy seat must be sprinkled, sorry, with blood because the blood answers to the justice of God due to our sin. And God says to Moses, Exodus 25 and 22 again, hear this. And there I will meet with you. And I'll speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I'll give you in commandment to the children of Israel. There, at the ark of the covenant, I'll meet with you, says the Lord. <laughs> it's one of the best words that you have in the whole Bible. There at the Ark of the Covenant, where there's the mercy seat, where there's the blood sprinkled to pacify God's wrath, God says, that's where I'm going to meet you. He tells sinners his meeting place and how to meet with them. He says, there I'll meet with you. God has chosen a meeting place for us with him. And I'll speak with you from above the mercy seat. What is God saying? The whole tabernacle system was typifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And God says, there in Christ, I'll meet with you. I shall meet you only in Christ. And in him and by him, I'll speak with you. There at the cross of Christ, God has met sinners. He has met his people. He cannot meet them anywhere else and not kill them. That's the issue here. God says, I can only meet with you in peace, on your part, at the mercy seat. Because sinners need mercy. So you have to meet him at the mercy seat. 
<laughs> and Paul says, Christ, the message for our sins, the propitiation for our sins. Christ, glorious Christ, beautiful Christ. And this message is accessible through faith and not works of the law. That is the implied contrast. You meet, you possess the message, not through the law, but through faith. See that even Moses had to meet God at the message. People say, oh, Moses kept the law. No, Moses did not keep the law. He had to meet God at the mercy seat. Why? Because Moses too was a grace case, like the rest of us. Moses was a sinner. So how be it that certain preachers and professing Christians tell us to go meet God at Mount Sinai? No, not at Mount Sinai. Not for me. I am meeting with God at the mercy seat. That is lazy boy theology. <laughs> this lazy boy theology. We meet God at the mercy seat. This is the redemption that is in Christ. Yeah, this is the redemption. It gives us the mercy seat. It's given us the meeting place between God and man. There I will meet with you. So if a preacher or any person is not bringing the message of there God has met with us by his grace, by his mercy, they are not speaking for God. Okay? So if you still recall the testimony of the text collector in Luke 18, he said, God, be merciful to me Sinner that I am, God be propitious to me. In other words, God meet me at the mercy seat of Christ. Or cause me to meet with you on account of my sin. Cause me to meet with you at the mercy seat. That's the only plea to make. That's why he went home justified. When you make the plea of meeting with God at the mercy seat, you go home justified. You are a justified person. Verse 25, Romans 3. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins previously committed. The redemption that is in Christ with or through the Christ who was publicly displayed on the cross as the propitiation for sin, was God demonstrating his righteousness. So ultimately, it is the Christ, it is the cross of Christ, who is the revelation and demonstration of God's righteousness. God was demonstrating God was putting on display his righteousness in that the soul that sins must die. 
that the wages of sin is death. That sin must be paid for and paid to his satisfaction. But when sin has been paid to his satisfaction, also those that Christ died for have to be set free. That is in accordance with righteousness. If you have made payment, you have to get your goods. God is demonstrating his righteousness. Once the payment is made, then his people are set free. So we have been set free. So whatever is owed must be paid. But when it has been paid, it cannot be reversed. God is not gangster. Okay? God is not gangster. He is holy and righteous. Verse 25, again, Paul said, God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. All the people of God who lived and died before the cross had their sins covered in a temporary way, but they were still looking to Christ. They were justified looking to the payment that was to come as we are justified looking back to the payment that was made. So God had temporarily passed over their sins, not judging them for it, because his intention was not to judge their sin in them, but to judge it in Christ. So he kind of put them in some holding position until the death of the high priest, anointed with oil, City of Refuge Theology. So the sins previously committed were not just swept under the carpet. God had them paid in Christ. So you have people who say, Christ only paid for your sins up to the point that you believe. After you've believed, and if you continue to sin, then those sins are they that you have to deal with. And make payment for yourself. Hence, purgatory. Purgatory is a paging of the sins that Christ somehow failed to page. It's false teaching. And yet, Roman Catholicism is founded on that foolishness. Okay? And here is the side B of that demonstration of God's righteousness. Verse 26, and we are going to end in verse 26, I believe, today. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just in the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness or the one who comes to God by Christ's faithfulness. So God was demonstrating that sin must be paid for because he is just. God is not running a corrupt government. He is a just and righteous God. And so the matter of salvation was based on righteous grounds. And that is why a substitute had to stand in the place of sinners for this transaction of the forgiveness of our sins to be legitimate. Just forgiving sin without payment would violate God's own justice and holiness. 
So the only plausible and legitimate way to grant eternal life to sinners who by nature are not able to meet the requirements of eternal life. God had Jesus standing in their place. And because of Christ, God has been just to forgive your sins and mine without any second thoughts, without any reservations. God has no reservations about the transaction that he has done for us in Christ. He is not going to revise it. Take it through some other act of Congress to say, okay, can you help me with that section? I don't think I worded it right. <laughs> so by Christ, God maintains his justice, his righteousness, and is able to freely and legally justify all who live because of Jesus' faithfulness, because of Christ's righteousness. All who live implies all those who are not condemned. All those who have been made just by God. Okay? So this is the understanding as we close. We need to understand gospel terms. Preachers need to explain, to expound, to make distinctions, to bring clarity to the message spoken. Because that's what builds true faith in God's people. That's what causes people to rejoice and sing amazing grace. <laughs> All men and women are sinners. And that means we have missed the mark and continue to daily miss the mark. Daily we miss the mark. And in that state, left to ourselves, we would not have any share in righteousness. No share in righteousness. We have all fallen short of the glory of God which means we have been left behind in the race of righteousness and so failed to reach the goal, to reach the finish line, yeah, to fall short of the end. We are so left behind in righteousness that there's no way for us to catch up. There's no way. There's no way. No fasting, no, uh, there's no way to catch up. Men and women are trying to catch up, but there's no way to catch up. And in this state, the law cannot help you. The flesh cannot help you. The flesh is not able to use the law to catch up. You have the goal, you have the flesh. You have the distance. If you use 
the law, to try and bridge the gap. It's not going to happen. You won't reach the end. But now, (laughs) a righteousness has been revealed. A righteousness apart from the law, apart from you trying to bridge it by yourself. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of the mercy said, the righteousness of faith, lazy boy theology, the righteousness of the shed blood, the sprinkled blood, the righteousness that is in the redemption of Christ, the buying back by the blood of Christ, the righteousness that is through the faithfulness of Christ and in Christ, the righteousness that is freely given, that is given without cause in us, this righteousness is the propitiation, is the satisfaction for your sin. It is your righteousness now. God has given it to you. All your sins of all time, every jot and tittle, has been taken care of for you by this righteousness. And by this righteousness of Christ and his cross, God has demonstrated his righteousness. And by the resurrection, he has demonstrated that he has accepted that righteousness for you. Because he was given over because of our transgressions, but was raised because of our justification. This Christ has redeemed the people at the price of his blood. And so God is able to be the just and justifier of those who live through Christ. Those who approach him through Christ. Not through Moses. And this righteousness is free. It's free. We are done. Praise God. Amen. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you for the righteousness of God that has been revealed to us in the gospel of Christ. We thank you for this righteousness that is answered for all our sins. He has made us able to reach the goal, the end, through Christ. For we had fallen behind in the race, fallen short of the glory of God. But here we are, standing in Christ as God's righteous people. We thank you for this testimony. We pray for people who have gathered around this message, praying for those who shall listen to it later. May you cause the people to hear. We pray for all things in Christ Jesus. Always. Amen. All right, good people, we are done. Go back and listen to the message. Again, there's a lot of nuggets. Yeah. All right.